Placement Level Show. I am your host, Chris Phillips. You can find me on X at C underscore Phillips underscore 13 and follow the show at Replacement Level 1. You can also listen to the show on Spotify, YouTube, and Applecast for all your baseball needs. Yes, this is a baseball show where we talk about all the latest happenings going on in pretty much baseball across the world. So a lot of it is Major League Baseball. But um, if you are a fan of the show, you like us, you know, be sure to click the like and subscribe buttons on those shows. And then also, if you want to chat with us more about any of the conversations that we have going on, be sure to do with that with us on the social media platforms. Or you can also leave us a comment on the shows as well. Today, we have a special guest. We have Dan Connolly of Sports Not joining us again. Dan, welcome back. Thanks. Appreciate it. So it's been kind of um, not as exciting like winter meetings or anything like that. Like the biggest trade that we had happened was the Juan Soto deal, but um, kind of a quiet winter meetings, and then also kind of kind of quiet for the Baltimore Orioles. They did go out and sign Craig Krimble. What is your thought on his addition to the pen for the Orioles? Honestly, it's probably the second biggest addition that they're going to make. Uh, Craig Kimbrell, you know, is, is potentially a Hall of Fame closer. He's a nine-time All-Star, has 417 saves, which is eighth overall in the history of Major League Baseball. And the Orioles needed a closer, but they did not want to go out and get somebody for two or three years, you know, at, at 10 to $15 million a year, simply because they have Felix Bautista that they believe will be their closer in 2025 and beyond. But he had Tommy John surgery in October. He's gone for the year. Yenier Cano is a solid, you know, solid reliever who did exceptionally well in the first half, kind of ran out of gas a little bit in the second half, could be a closer, but they're not 100% sure. This is a team that won 101 games last year. This is a team that believes it's going to be in the playoffs for a while. And they saw themselves with a, with a major hole at closer, but they didn't want to tie it up for several years because Bautista, you know, presumably is coming back. So Kimbrell makes sense. One year, $12 million guaranteed for 2024. An option for 2025 that would be $13 million with a $1 million uh, buyout. So it's a $13 million guaranteed contract overall. And it's for one year plus that option if they want to take it. So it kind of fits there. And Kimbrell's been consistent. And obviously, you know, if you've seen him in the postseason the last few years, um, he, he can make you worry. And Philadelphia fans are not a big are not big fans of Craig Kimbrell after what happened, you know, in the NLCS. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's some concern that when the Orioles get to the postseason, what will he be? He's 35 years old. He's got a lot of miles, and he hasn't been particularly good in really pretty much any of the the postseasons he's had in the last five years. That said, he fits them financially. He fits what they want in one year. He's probably the best closer with closer experience they could have. And if he works out, great. If he doesn't work out, but he still buys some time for the first few months, that allows Cano to kind of settle in again. You know, last year was his first year as a, as a major, as a full-time major leaguer. Let's him settle in a little bit. Let's DL Hall, Tyler Wells, guys who could possibly be late inning you know, relievers for the Orioles. Let's them settle in as well. So, I mean, I think at the very least he buys time for him. At the best... He's Craig Kimbrell of 2018, and the Orioles got something great. Sure, sure. Now, that was, it, it was kind of an interesting move when I first 
read it um, just because, like you said, they got Cano, they got Batista. I was like, what is that going to do with them? But then the more I thought about it and kind of looked at it, I was like, yeah, that does, that does make some sense in them, like you pointed out. What um, the, kind of going further with this offseason for the Orioles, what have you, what's your thoughts been on the Orioles offseason so far? Well, I mean, like I said, you know, it's, it's fairly fairly new in a sense. I mean, you know, you still got a couple months here. And they went ahead and they were one of the few teams to actually sign a free agent so far. So that in itself, I guess, is good. Uh, the question is what happens with the starting pitching. And that's what the Orioles have to do. This would not be a complete offseason if they did not improve their starting pitching. They need to do it. I do not believe they're going to be spending a lot of money for that. Mike Elias, since he took over in 2018, has never given a multi-year contract, a guaranteed multi-year contract, to any free agent. So it's going to have to come in trade. And the Orioles probably are best set than any team in baseball right now to package a couple prospects for a pitcher. And the names out there, you know, we've talked about this before, Dylan Cease, uh, Corbin Burns, Shane Bieber, uh, even potentially, you know, some other names. And, and so the Orioles are obviously going to be looking at that and trying to get into that market and trying to trade for somebody. Cease is you know, particularly interesting because he's got a couple years and the White Sox, you know, clearly are shutting down and trying to get better and rebuilding. So that seems like that's a fit. Uh, pretty much all of them fit. Tyler Glasnow is a guy who I don't know if the Rays are trading in the division with the Orioles, but he's also another guy, name you could throw out there as a possibility. The Rays, obviously, as we know, you know, once they're they're kind of done with a guy before his contract ends, they move him on and, and try to build up their you know their farm system and their younger players. So there are names out there. I would imagine the Orioles are involved in one of those guys or in some other pitcher that we're in starting pitcher we're not talking about. But this would not be a strong offseason, Chris, if they do not improve that rotation with somebody who can be a two, or potentially number one. All right, so really tough question here for you, Dan. I hope you're ready. If the Orioles, if you're running the Orioles, who is the one starting pitcher that you are going out and signing for them? I'm probably acquiring Cease because he does have two years. Uh, he had kind of a down year last year, um, you know, led the, led the league in walks, and that's a concern. But the Orioles have been really good at, like, helping their pitchers throw, ball, throw the ball over the plate. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the changes that you've seen in the pitcher development, and I think that's something that they would obviously, you know, work with with Cison. Um, but he's got a couple years; he's still young enough, and I think that that's what they want. They don't want just a rental because they want this team to be good for a while. And obviously, like we talked with Kimbrel, kind of buying time for the younger relievers. You get a guy who's a, who's a little older, a little bit more experienced to put up top there, and that allows you. Know, Kyle Bradish had a great season last year, but that kind of takes a little pressure off of him. Grayson Rodriguez has, you know, a little less pressure to kind of fall into number three. John Means, if he's healthy, you know, is a, is a good pitcher and a left-hander. So you get those guys, and maybe Dean Kramer, you know, can continue to pitch, you know, at, at least as well as he did last year, maybe better. And that's a better rotation. But you need somebody in that. And to me, Cease is a great guy. I'd love to have Burns, you know, if I'm running the thing, because I think he's the best of that group. But I think he's going to cost a lot. I'm not convinced Milwaukee's going to sell him. Honestly, they won the they won the uh, the NL Central by nine games last year, right? So mm-hmm. I know they let uh, you know Brandon Woodford go, but for the most part, they're still the same team. And if they want to keep Burns and they want to keep Willie Thomas, they can do so and make a run another run at the NL Central. So I'm not a hundred percent, you know, 
in belief that they're going to end up dealing Burns. But if they do, I would definitely get in line with that if I'm the Orioles. But again, you don't want to mortgage it all for one year. Sure, sure. No, then that makes sense for sure. So um, speaking of big trades, there was a blockbuster one that happened not too long ago, and that is, of course, of the San Diego Padres shipping out Juan Soto to the New York Yankees. What I know the Yankees aren't necessarily the team that you cover, uh, but what are, your, what are your thoughts? They are a team in the ALE, so what are your thoughts on that acquisition? Yeah, anytime the Yankees do anything or any team in the in the East does something, we have to pay attention because that changes you know the scope of the East and the division and such. And so this is one obviously I've been following for a while. And for me, I mean, I think it's a great move in a sense that I, I think Juan Soto is one of the best players in baseball. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the top five players in baseball. I believe that he had you know he had a down year in 2022, both in Washington when they weren't playing for anything, and then in San Diego when he just couldn't fit in, you know, those couple months when he was traded. He had a pretty good year last year, and he had a slow start. But, I mean, he had 35 home runs, and he, you know, he he did everything. And so he's a really good player. And Juan Soto in Yankee Stadium with that right field porch, I mean, that's scary. And that's really scary when you put him in the lineup, you know, that has Judge and has, you know, a, a bunch of really good veteran hitters. So I think in that aspect, it's a great deal for the Yankees. It's a great deal for anybody to get Juan Soto. My question is, if the Yankees stop at Juan Soto, they've based, in my opinion, they basically wasted a year of Juan Soto. They need to go out and they need to get pitching. And Yamamoto is a guy that you know we've heard a lot about as a possibility. I could see Jordan Montgomery going back. But they need to get a pitcher or two in that rotation. Michael King is a guy that, that a lot of people, even though he's in New York, a lot of people don't know much about. But he was their most versatile pitcher in New York. I have a scout that told me that he was the best pitcher on that staff besides Cole. And if you look at the numbers, he really had the best year on anybody in that staff besides Cole. You take Cole and King out of that Yankees rotation, or out of that Yankees staff, and they go from ninth in ERA to 22nd in ERA from last year. Um, now, obviously, a lot of that is Cole in the 209 innings or whatever. But King was really good. So you can't necessarily expect Cole to do the same thing. I mean, you know, he's obviously Cole. He's obviously one of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher in the majors. But he had a a near-career year last year. Maybe he duplicates that, but you really shouldn't count on that. So to me, and and you lose King, you don't know what Rodon's going to give you. You don't know Cortez, you know, how healthy he's going to be. The Yankees got to go out and get one or two starters. They do that. They're back, in my opinion, to being, you know, if not the team, one of the teams. If they just get Juan Soto, they're a team that can really hit. But I'm still worried about that pitching. And remember, Chris, they they finished fourth in division last year. Mm -hmm. You know, there are three teams ahead of them that are really good. And, you know, you you hear all the rumors with Otani, you know, and, and potentially Toronto. I mean, if that happens, holy heck. So, I mean, you know, it's a really good division. The Yankees know that. The Yankees cannot make this a one, you know, one acquisition, one player acquisition. Obviously, I know they got Christian, but I mean, like a one superstar acquisition. They need to go out and improve that rotation. They do that, and they're every bit the Yankees. If they don't, then I still think they're behind some of these teams in the East. If they do end up just being, like their offseason is just the acquisition of Soto and then the acquisition of Alex Verdugo as well, does that close the gap at all between Baltimore and New York, or is it kind of just probably the same result for next season? 
I mean, obviously, you get Soto, you're closing gaps. I mean, he's that good. And Verdugo's a, a fine player. I mean, I, you know, I, he's not what people thought he would be when, you know, when the Red Sox dealt Mookie Betts for him, basically. Uh, but he's a good player. And that, uh, that offense is a really good offense, you know, if you go down from the top to bottom. Uh, excellent with Verdugo in there, and you have LeMahieu, and, yet, you know, I mean, you obviously have Stanton and, and Judge and now Soto. Uh, that's a really, really good offense. That said, you still need to pitch. And mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, if Rodon comes back and was what he was a couple years ago, then absolutely they're back in it. But I don't think you can count on that. I think in, in this division, as deep it is, as it is, you have to bring, you know, the pitching as well. And if they don't do that, I think that they don't really close the gap the where they want it to be. They're still going to be a good team. I mean, let's face it, they're the Yankees. But they're not necessarily the Yankees if they don't go out and get themselves at least one, and I would think probably two starting pitchers. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see what they do for sure. Dan, I want to go and kind of ask you about something. Um, I saw a tweet on Twitter, and granted, you can't always believe everything you read on there because it's not always true or anything like that, but I did see a tweet about a gentleman, Mr. Rubenstein, potentially buying the – Orioles, he's part of, the, I think, the, the Carlisle group as well. Um, I didn't really realize that the Orioles were up for sale. Like, I know the A's are and potentially, like, well, not up for sale, but they're moving. Um, but is, I guess, are the Orioles for sale, or can you just expand a little bit more on what's happening with the team? Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I said this many times, but my very first story, big story covering, was there were rumors that the Orioles were going to sell that Peter Angelos, the Angelos family, was going to sell. And I spent a week or two trying to track down these rumors and wrote wrote what I found. And that was in 2001, okay? Oh, this is okay. 2023, 22-plus <laughs> years later. And this is still, are the Orioles going to sell? What's going to happen? I think we're closer to an Angelos family sale than we've ever been. But I don't think we are waiting on an impending uh, Angelos sale, family sale. First of all, Peter Angelos is 94 years old. He is incapacitated. He, you know, he is not running the team, um, but he still owns the team. So, if the if the family were to sell now, there would be capital gains taxes that would be as far as uh, overall taxes. I'm, I'm missing the word here, but um, uh, inheritance taxes that would that would basically cost them millions upon millions of dollars if they sold while Peter Angelos was still alive. Um, because the way the, the way the franchise would be valued in those sales is what the taxes come off of. Mm-hmm. So they cannot, I mean, I mean, they could, but it would not be financially smart for them to sell while Mr. Angelos is still alive. So that's number one. Um, there, there's still a whole lot of other issues involving the Orioles, including they don't have a, a lease yet for Camden Yards. Um, that expires at the end of this month in December. And I don't think the Orioles are moving anywhere or going anywhere, but that still has to be figured out. And, and there's a lot of machinations on what's going to happen with that based on money coming in from the, from the state and also based on uh, trying to develop the area around Camden Yards, which is something John Angelos, Peter's son, who's in charge of the team right now, he wants to happen. Uh, that has to be worked out with the Maryland Stadium Authority, with the Maryland uh, with the, the governor, all of that, um, that has not been figured out. There's still mass concerns, 
even though the first suit was settled, there's still several things, several different periods on how much they owe in that. I, I can't imagine a buyer's going to want to come in and do something with, with the team if that's not settled, because that's millions of dollars that have to be paid to the Nationals. Lots of things swirling. David Rubenstein's a guy that, that his name is, has bounced around for years. He has said in the past, on the record, that he would be interested in you know, buying the Orioles if they were for sale. The report that came out of Bloomberg yesterday is that he has spoken with the Orioles about a potential trade. I mean, about a potential buy. And he's a billionaire, so he could do that. I just think there's a lot of other strings attached here that would make it difficult for it to happen soon. And I do think there would be somewhat of a bidding war because there are a lot of, of you know, I mean, there's not there's 30 teams. And Baltimore is one that you would think would be on the rise because the team is really good. You know, their, their stadium situation, once figured out, will be stable. They're just a stable franchise at this point, except for the ownership. And that could change if the owners change hands. So I do think that we will see a sale of the Orioles by the Angeles family at some point. They own 70%. Will it be so they're no longer a majority? Perhaps. But I just, think, I just caution people because I'm not sure, given the inheritance tax situation and given the other things I mentioned, that this is something that's going to happen soon. Hmm. Okay. All right. We'll definitely keep an eye on it. A uh, question I have, though, you mentioned about this new stadium push. Do you think that would be done before a potential sale or would that be done like after basically would the new owner be like listen if i'm buying this team i want to be having input in what the stadium's going to look like or would it be something where it's kind of like i kind of don't care because i'm buying the team like as long as the facilities are great and everything like awesome i just want the team right well to clarify we're not talking about building a stadium we're just talking about renovations to a state to the okay. camden yards cam yards is is camden yards that's not going to be what happened was uh, last year, the Maryland State Assembly um, approved 1.2 million. I mean, I'm sorry, 1.2 billion in renovation funds for the Cam Yards complex, which is M&T Bank Stadium, where the Ravens play, and Cam Yards, where the Orioles play. Uh, to access that 600 million, a lease, a long-term lease, has to be signed. And the Orioles have not done that. The Ravens have. They've extended their lease. The Orioles have not extended theirs. And I would imagine that. That part of it, extending that part of it, would be done, would have to be done before somebody new comes in. Now, as far as what they would do with the $600 million, you would th- think if somebody comes in, they want to have say on that. Uh, also, John Angelos is trying to create an area in, you know, around surrounding Camden Yards that would be a place that has bars and restaurants and, and kind of similar in a sense, although they don't have a land for it, um, to what's happened in Atlanta. And that's kind of what they would love to have in Baltimore so that, you know, it's a 365-day place to visit and not an 82-game place to visit or, you know, 100-game if you count the Ravens in, 90-games you count the Ravens in. So I think that that is something that John Angelos wants, and I think it makes some sense. And I think uh, I know that the governor of Maryland, new governor of Maryland, is behind that as well to try and make that a, a more of a destination area. But... I don't think that's going to be something that happens simply. And so I think that might still be in the works if a new owner comes in as well. But that's also, I think John Angelos wants to make his mark on that. So I would imagine he wouldn't want to give up the team until that's settled. So like I said, there's a lot of things going on. But the one thing, just to make sure to clarify, is Camden Yards is going to stay Camden Yards. It's one of the jewels of baseball, and that's not going anywhere. 
Okay. Well, yeah. Thank you for correcting me. I, I didn't necessarily mean like a brand building a new stadium, but just I know there was talk about right. a push from uh, Mr. Angelus about for a new stadium and a new area in there. Uh, Dan, you I believe vote for the Hall of Fame for baseball, correct? Yes. Okay. Would you mind? I know you made a vote, and I happen to see a tweet of yours back when the votes were had to be casted a while ago. Um, and you kind of shared some insight on Hall of Fame voting. Um, what, I, I guess, can you share some more insight for the audience here? Like what goes into that? How does it all kind of play out? And um, how did you get to be a person who gets to vote on the Hall of Fame? Okay, we'll take the, the, the last part's the easiest. Uh, okay. If you are in the BBWAA for 10 years consecutively, uh, then you get a Hall of Fame vote. Um, and so I've, I've been in for 23. So, you know, so I, I've been able to do that for a while. Uh, it takes, I, you know, it's funny because a lot of fans, they look at it, and they get really angry because it doesn't agree with what, what they think. And they think, you know, I've heard a lot that it should be taken away from the writers and the writers don't care and whatever. And, and I've dealt with this for a long time and I've talked to a lot of writers. There's at least two writers who every year I call up or they call me up, and we talk about it before we put our ballots in. I always put it in right before Christmas. It's like the last thing that I do before I, you know, kind of go on my Christmas break. And it takes a, I mean, I look at a lot of stuff, and there is so much information out there. Ultimately, it's got to be what I'm comfortable with. So I've never voted for a guy that I really wasn't comfortable with voting for or have left the guy off that I wasn't comfortable with. That said, there's so much gray area. And, you know, and you've got to decide what that gray area is. Um, I'm a big hall guy, which means I think that you should kind of give the benefit of the doubt to these guys because there are so few great greats, but there's so many players who were really exceptional and probably should be part of the story of baseball. So I'm more of a big hall guy, which means I put some guys in that a lot of others may not, may not think are worthy. Um, there are so many different ways to decide that. And, and you know, and, and there are, uh, guys have done Jay Jaffe's done a great job in putting some some perspective into the Hall of Fame, um, and I read his stuff every year. I literally go back every year and reevaluate. I don't just go, well, I voted for these six guys. These six guys are in. Who are the other three I'm going to put in? I don't do that. Um, I go back and I look at each one. Now, you know, most of them for me that if I've already decided on them, I'm good with. I also don't try to compare players to players, those who are in, those who aren't in. I try to go on whether I think that person was a Hall of Famer and use the numbers for that. And, you know, I, there are some – I never voted for Tim Raines because I didn't think that the argument for Tim Raines of being one of the greatest leadoff hitters of all time should get him in based on the fact that, honestly, he only – like 30% of the games he played weren't at leadoff. So I don't think we can say that, you know, he's one of the greatest leadoff hitters of time, but – there were 30% of the time that managers didn't even put him in as, as the leadoff hitter. Whereas Ricky Henderson was like 99.3%. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I look at the overall argument and try to come up with it and try to at least be comfortable with it. This year, a tough one for me is going to be Joe Maurer because, you know, we're, we're evaluating or a lot of, you know, populace is evaluating him as a great hitting catcher, which he was. And he was one of the best hitting catchers of all time. He only played catcher, 100 games or more in five seasons. And he only played catcher 900 games in, or started about 900 games in his career. There's a lot of time there that he played first base and DH. He played as many games at first, started as many games at first base and DH as he did a catcher. You know, when you combine first base and DH together. So that's one I really have to think about because the catching thing is important, really important. 
but he wasn't a full-time catcher for a long period of time. Injuries cause that, and that happens. But I think that's something that has to be a part of the equation. So that's one. I've already kind of questioned that one, and I've gotten hammered by people in Minnesota. And I understand. And he was a really good player. Mm-hmm. So that's one that I'm going to really evaluate. And uh, like Adrian Beltre's up this year. I don't even think I have to evaluate him. During his career, I thought he was one of the best third basemen in the history of baseball. And the numbers back that up. So he's one. I will look at it. I will just make sure. But he's a guy during his career I thought he should be a Hall of Famer. And I don't necessarily sit on that, Chris, because things change. And I, you know, my mind changes. And I I think about how I'm going to evaluate a person a different way. And one of the things that bothers fans and bothered me before I was a, a writer and a voter is how can a guy not be a Hall of Famer for five years and then all of a sudden you put him on the ballot, you know, his career, he's been retired for five years, ten years. How can he change? And it's the evaluation and, and, and really what I think. And that's why I talk to other writers every year to get their evaluation, to get their thought on maybe what am I missing? What I what am I being, you know, this is a guy's life. This is the most important thing that will happen to this, this man now after his baseball career. I want to make sure I'm making the right decision. And I want to make sure that I'm really thinking about what that means. And so... It, it, it takes up way too much of my time. My wife will tell you that, and uh, my kids will tell you that. So I, I, a lot goes into the thought process. And, and you, can, you can argue with my thinking on it. You can argue with what, I, what my end of results end up being. I'm fine with that because that's the beauty of the Hall of Fame and the beauty of baseball's Hall of Fame because we have these, those arguments. But no one can say I didn't look into it. No one can say I didn't do my homework and come up with my own opinion. And one other thing, one thing that I did during the steroid time was – I tried to dumb down the steroid stats, the obvious steroid stats, the home runs, you know, that kind of thing, the power numbers, and kind of look at the player as a whole. And when I did that, what happened for me is that defensive players really rose up for me. Hmm. So when I'm looking at a player as a whole, I look at guys and, and look at what their defense is and how good of a defensive player that is, and that plays a part in it. So I'm a guy who's been on, in the past anyway, I've been on Torrey Hunter, I've been on Andrew Jones, I've been on Scott Rowland, uh, Larry Walker, um, from the beginning, because I feel like those guys were exceptional defensive players as well. And so that, for me, is one that I have to, you know, I'm really going to have to evaluate this year. Because Maurer was a real good catcher, defensive catcher as well, for the times he played there. And there are some other guys. I've been a Jimmy Rollins supporter, and now Chase Utley's up. And it's almost like you can't do one without the other, you know, so I really have to reevaluate that. So there's a lot that goes into it. Long, long answer, but there's a lot that goes into it, in my opinion, anyway. Oh, it's all good stuff. I love hearing this, for sure, because... It- you can have so many arguments for and against all these players and everybody views them differently. And like you said, with their offense and their defense, some people like the more defense players who bring more defensively. Others like the ones who just hit the long ball offensively. I, I do want to ask though, in terms of when you're kind of looking at these players, is there, I know you say you don't compare players to each other, but is there a bit of a, challenge when you're kind of looking at a guy say a Tony Gwynn who's mostly just a singles and a hitter versus somebody like a Barry Bonds who's known for his great power and even with pitching when you have somebody like a Randy Johnson versus like a Greg Maddox those two different styles of play do you does that kind of impact your initial thought at all or like you said you just look at it as a whole and like no these dudes are just hall of famers right I look at it in the overall sense 
And these guys are just Hall of Famers or they're not Hall of Famers. I don't like – I mean, there are guys who, you know, who have real warts on their resume. And you have to look at that. Um, the character thing is, is part of, you know, what we're supposed to vote on. And we, and we have no definition. We've never been given a definition on what that means. So we have to – we each have to interpret that. And so it's difficult. It is a difficult task. And I used to be, so, I was so excited when I first got my first ballot. Um, and the excitement has worn off, not just because I've gotten used to it, I think, but also because it's so much harder. Because, you know, you have to decide what these guys are. There, there's a player that I was really supportive of, and then a lot came out about his, his background or, or, like, his character. And I've pushed him off, and now I'm wondering whether I... Should put it back on. I mean, you know, it's difficult things like that. But as far as a style of a player, like Randy Johnson and Greg Maddox couldn't have been more different, right? But they right. both were tremendous at their game. And they were tremendous for a long period of time. Longevity and consistency mean something to me as well. Um, I'm not necessarily – I mean, I, I do understand the, the, the small window guys who had six or eight years of dominance and maybe not after that, like an Andrew Jones, for instance, or like a Joe Maurer, for instance – I'm I'm aware of that, and I do play into that. But I also play into longevity because longevity means that somebody thought they were good enough to keep them in the lineup and play them, and and that to me is important because this game, if you aren't producing, you're gone. I mean, even if you are a superstar, if you two years in a row aren't very good, they'll find something else to do with you. So, uh, especially if you're you know your contract's up. So I do think longevity and quality of longevity is important. Okay. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it's interesting when you said the the length because the guy that immediately came to my mind is Tim Lincecum. Like he was very good for a very short period of time, um, but I've seen a lot of people saying like, "Oh, he's a Hall of Famer because of that short dominance." But then they also said he didn't pitch long enough. I'm kind of thinking like, "Well, what's the requirement for length of time that somebody has to be good?" Because if you use that, then there may be some guys that are in the Hall of Fame that don't fit that criteria because they didn't play that long. So. Um, I want to shift to more of the, the future of guys that are going to be coming up and eventually, hopefully, playing in Major League Baseball, and that's going to be Baltimore's prospects. Obviously, Jackson Holiday is a huge name to watch. Uh, I'm guessing you saw the video of Jackson Holiday taking on his dad and his brother in the Metal Bat Home Run Derby, which was kind of cool to see. Um, who, who is the next prospect to make their debut, debut this upcoming season? Well, I think Holiday's the guy. I mean, I think you start with him. Uh, Mike Elias said recently at the winter meetings that he's going to have every chance to make this team, the Orioles team coming out in 2024. It's good for the Orioles if he does it because if he's as good as we think he is and he wins rookie of the year, they'll, they'll get an extra pick like they, they did with uh, Gunnar Henderson. So I think he's the guy. I think he's the guy to watch. Um, you know, there are other players on other teams that are interesting. Uh, you know, the the Milwaukee Brewers just took care of one of their guys mm -hmm. uh, who could be up next year and could be, you know, one of those guys to watch. Um, but I think Holiday is guy. I saw Holiday play in spring training this year. Um, had never seen him play before. Comes in in the fifth or sixth inning, and I couldn't take my eyes off the kid. First of all, he looks like he's twelve. I mean, he is a young-looking young man. Um, but just everything he does is smooth. You know, he he's got a great eye for his age. Uh, a really good swing, a compact swing. He's not, you know, at this point right now, I don't know what the home run numbers are going to be for him um, until he grows. He's not a very big kid as far as tall kid. He definitely takes care of himself like his father did. He's not the size of his father, at least not yet. 
but uh, you know he just he is just a he's just a whole package. He can run really well. He's very smooth defensively. Uh, there's a reason he was picked number one overall. There's a reason he's been hyped since he was 12 or 13 years old, and he's every bit deserved that hype. Now the, you know what happens when he gets to the majors. But the guy, kid, you know, 20 years old, he's at AAA and he's doing well. And and the fact that he handled every level the way he has handled it uh, makes you think that. With some, you know, some transition, he's going to be a, a fine to much more than fine, you know, big league ball player. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see if he's able to make the team from spring training, or if they decide to kind of maybe keep him down in the minors just to start before they call him up. But uh, Dan, we're getting closer to the end of the show, and like I do all the time when we have our guests on, I want to give you an opportunity to self-promote and brag. Um, what is the latest thing that you are working on, or what can fans look forward to seeing from you? It's, it's funny. I was thinking about that question. Right now, I'm just kind of like watching what's going on in baseball and putting it together. Usually, I have a lot of you know story stories in the in the can, getting ready to to put or, or start working on. But right now, the, the big question, Chris, is the Otani thing. And as soon as that happens, obviously, I'll opine on on what I think of the deal and where he went and what that means and things of that nature. But I'm trying right now, I'm almost in reaction mode to see what happens in these next couple weeks and kind of go with that. And, and the Otani thing is obviously so interesting. Um, sure. How much money is he going to get? He's going to break a record. There's no question in my mind. Uh, where is he going to go? And, and, and really, to me, more than anything else is where he goes, how does that affect that team and how does it affect the teams around them? Like I said, if he, you know, if he ends up in the American League East, that changes a lot of things in the American League East. Uh, because he is the best player in baseball, um, you know, and, and there are, and I, I, I'm still waiting to see if maybe a team sneaks in, and you know, I guess Toronto is a team that's kind of snuck in a little bit, but you know, who knows? I mean, I, the thing is, I know Otani's agent rather well, and he he works this way. He he keeps things under wraps. He doesn't like you know the leaking and things like that is not something that's usually on Nez's watch, uh, and so you know, all we've had is speculation. Mm-hmm. And that's been, you know, that's been frustrating, but it's been kind of fun, too, to kind of see what, you know, where people are going and what people are thinking and such. So I'm sure people are getting tired of reading, you know, these tiny incremental updates. But for me, I, I think that's the story of the winter. And that's going to be obviously what I'll be opining on as soon as that happens. You got a prediction on what team he's going to land? I've been saying the Dodgers all along. Um, I, I thought the Seattle Mariners were a team that would sneak in. It doesn't appear like there's been a lot of noise with them so maybe not uh i think dodgers are still the team that, that i would put my money on but you know there's there's been a whole lot of buzz recently about the toronto blue jays and they would be a team i think that i mean that would be a smart move for them if they feel like they can afford it so that would be interesting and then i would get to see them 19 times a, a year instead of three times or six times a year so that would be fun Awesome, awesome. We'll, we'll definitely be watching Otami, and we'll definitely be watching for the next uh, articles that you have coming out and following along. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. It's always great to have you on the show and talk talk some baseball with you, too. It's been a while, and definitely love having you on. Uh, for everybody out there that loves this show and then obviously loves Dan, you can follow him on Twitter at DanConnolly2016. You can also find his work at sportsnot.com as well. Um, you can also check out his book that he has out there. Uh, he's the author of 100 Things or uh, 100 Thing O's. Um, I would definitely recommend giving that a read, and it makes a good Christmas gift since the holidays are Absolutely. upcoming. 
as well. Um, you can follow the show, like I said, the, on Twitter at replacement level one, myself at C underscore Phillips underscore 13. My co-host, Rafal Negnowinski, who's over in Israel. I spoke with him earlier this morning. He's doing great, having a good time over there. Uh, you can follow him at RafalN613. Again, you can find these shows and these episodes on YouTube, on Spotify, on Applecast, and pretty much anywhere else you can get podcasts as well. So, again, thank Dan, thank you so much for coming on, and we will see you guys all later.